Welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 5th of January with me, Ian Welsh. It's good to be back. Before the Christmas break, I spoke with Cloris Geospatial's co-founder and CEO, Marco Albani. We spoke about trends in impact measurement and carbon accounting, and whether we should move away from thinking only in terms of zero deforestation. That's to come. First, though, is some sustainable business news, this week with Innovation Forum's B. Stevenson. A report by UK Members of Parliament has revealed that the country's consumption patterns are causing an unsustainable impact on the global environment, particularly contributing to deforestation. Through imports of products like soya, cocoa, palm oil, beef and leather, the UK's deforestation footprint, classified by the Environmental Audit Committee as per tonne of forest-based products consumed, surpasses that of other nations including China. While the government plans to ban products from illegal deforestation in the supply chain, Critics, including Client Earth, argue that this may encourage countries to legalise deforestation so as to continue the export of certain products to the UK. The report urges ministers to set a target for reducing the UK's global deforestation impact and implement a global footprint indicator. The MPs also express concern for indigenous people protecting at-risk forests globally, emphasising the need for their inclusion in deforestation negotiations. The report criticises the lack of urgency in implementing measures to halt deforestation and calls on the UK to lead by example in environmental protection. The EU Parliament and Council negotiators have reached a milestone agreement on new regulations compelling companies to incorporate human rights and environmental considerations into their management systems. The new directive on corporate sustainability due diligence mandates companies to address their adverse impact on human rights and the environment, covering issues like child labour, slavery, labour exploitation, pollution, deforestation and damage to ecosystems. Firms, including the financial sector, must integrate due diligence into their policies and risk management systems, outlining their approach, processes and code of conduct. The legislation applies to EU companies with over 500 employees and a turnover exceeding 150 million euros, including those with over 250 employees and a turnover of more than 40 million euros in specific sectors. Companies are required to identify, assess, prevent, mitigate and remedy negative impacts, engaging with affected parties and implementing a complaints mechanism. The law now awaits formal approval by relevant committees and the European Parliament this year before becoming enforceable. A report recently published in the journal Nature Climate Change emphasises that promoting climate-friendly behaviours is more effective in societies where everyone, irrespective of income, has the capacity to make changes. The researchers, funded by the Swiss National Science Foundation and Wellcome Trust, suggest that addressing inequality is crucial for global movement towards net zero, as inequality hampers the feasibility of adopting low-carbon behaviours at the individual and household level. While affluent individuals may have larger carbon footprints, they often have the means to easily reduce them. But the report highlights the lack of political recognition of the barriers that hinder people, particularly those on lower incomes, from adopting climate-friendly behaviours. To tackle this, policymakers are urged to provide equal opportunities for low-carbon behaviours across all income brackets, considering wealth, income, political influence, free time and access to low-carbon options. The researchers suggest policy interventions such as urban planning for sustainable transportation, 
progressive taxation and employer-subsidised low-carbon meal options to address deep-rooted inequalities and make low-carbon choices accessible to all. A few weeks ago, I caught up with Clorosy Spatial's co-founder and CEO, Marco Albani. You work with companies to help them measure impacts on nature and carbon. How is this area evolving and where do you see the real innovation now? I think we're in the middle of a very interesting change, which is the introduction of direct biomass measurement in the mainstream of operationalizing carbon accounting. Traditionally, carbon accounting has been done for nature, so for uh, nature-based solution, land, what's the UCF, what is called, I think, in the COP28 and before language, so land use, land use change in forestry, has been a combination of area measurements, so measuring the area of forest, of other land use and land covers, and then emission factors. So how much carbon gets lost or gained when things move from one land use and land cover and another. You know, we like to say it's like Gordon Gecko's telephone. It's like the 1980s technology fundamentally. You had forest inventories and you started to have land cover classification, land use classification initially from satellites, like the first multispectral satellites for Earth observation going space in the 1970s. And by 1980s, you start to have these images and say, okay, great, we can map the Earth, we can map how much forest there is and how much is going away. The foresters in the past used to use aerial photography, stereoscopical photography is to estimate also the height of trees, but that's an expensive technology that cannot be done wall to wall every year. And so with satellites, we start to have this opportunity. And so this is developed through the 80s and 90s, and this becomes a bit the way of doing this, basically saying we measure the area of forest, and then we assign to that area a volume of carbon that is based on forest inventory and other measurements, but it's largely separated from the measurement of the area. Beginning the early 2000s, so in the last 20 years, we've been this deployment of LiDAR. So LiDAR instruments can measure the height of canopy directly from airborne instruments, from UAVs, and increasingly directly from space. And so we had the ISAT mission, then we had the JEDI mission, and so we have missions of spaceport instruments that are measuring the height of the trees, the structure of the canopy, and from this we can get direct biomass estimates from time. And starting in the early 2000s, in mid-2000s, with publication that come out in 2010s, people like our chief scientist, Alessandro Baccini, and others publish academic papers on how you can use machine learning models trained with LiDAR to do direct biomass estimation. So you're not now measuring the area of forest, but you're measuring the amount of the volume of biomass that you have everywhere continuously over time. So the stock and the change of biomass directly. Now this until now was pretty much something that's until now, until the last two, three years, but something that was largely an academic pursuit for global greenhouse gas accounting, closing the gap, the was called the accounting gap between the emission, how much is CO2 in the atmosphere, how much we find in the oceans, how much is in the forest, and so on. It was an academic problem with policy implication, but not operational. Didn't have operational capacity. And now we have a series of companies that are bringing this to play as an operational tool. And so now we have ourselves, but it's not just us. So there's Planet, there's Space Intelligence, there are other companies that are fundamentally producing 
biomass maps and biomass change maps. Now we think cars are better and we have a longer time series and we can talk about why the Claris maps is the one you need to use. But beyond that, what it means is that we're not the only suppliers of this kind of data and this data is coming to market. And indeed, we're starting to see the carbon accounting organization, for example, the new ecosystem restoration standard actually incorporating as an accounting tool. And the new VERA methodologies are starting to recognize that in the carbon markets, and there is mention of this in GHG protocol, although it's not 100% clear on how it's actually going to be incorporated. So we have this shift from this area-based view of the world to a direct biomass measurement view of the world. And do you think that this shift is being universally accepted as the way to go? Is this now best practice biomass measurement? I think it is best practice, but I don't think it's universally accepted in the sense that the forestry space has always been conservative and the carbon accounting space has always been conservative. And even recently in the latest, you can see that how much resistance, for example, there has been in the adoption of algorithmic classification of land use, land cover change events that has been in carbon accounting. And so, for example, as recently as the latest Vera methodologies, they basically require visual interpretation of images rather than directly using algorithmic assessments or computer vision to detect forest cover change. Now, funnily enough, the whole bruja on the quality on the voluntary carbon markets in avoided deforestation came out from people using products that are algorithmic products. So you had scientists going out, taking products like Global Forest Watch or the Maryland Global Forest Change product and saying, these projects are not doing as well as they say they're doing based on this product, product that actually would not be considered good enough by the standard to be used in designing the project. And so you have this crazy thing in which people are using a product that the standards are saying is not good enough to tell them that the projects are not good enough. So I think we got to move on, move into the 21st century with these things and really embrace both machine learning and algorithms for measuring carbon and events and direct measurement. These tools are out there and they're commercially available and they're increasingly adopted. You emphasize the need to think about weighing the trees rather than counting them. Can you explain a bit more about that approach? Fundamentally, trees are fractal, right? We're getting into the winter in the Northern Hemisphere and, and Christmas seasons for those who celebrate, and there are Christmas trees in the shops that you can buy. So those are trees, right? Then there's like giant sequoia. Now, giant sequoia <laughs> weighs as much as hundreds of thousands of those Christmas trees, in fact, as millions of those Christmas trees. So when you count the trees, you lose the, the, the point that trees can have very, very different dimensions. Counting things makes sense when they're kind of roughly the same. And you can expect that multiplying an average by the number of trees that you've counted will give you a good estimate of the total of what you care about, which in this case is the carbon stored, so the biomass. The problem is that that's not true for trees. Most of the biomass is stored in this few very big trees. That happens in forests everywhere. And so you have a lot of small trees. They don't matter very much. And then you have a few big trees and they matter a lot. That's why also in carbon monitoring and measurement is important to understand where those bigger trees are and what happens to them as opposed to tracking all the small ones. I mean, I guess this is part of almost a move towards not just thinking in pure 
zero deforestation terms is actually more complicated than that, isn't it? It's simpler once you embrace the complexity in the sense that zero deforestation idea, it's an important one. And I don't think it means that we should move away, especially if we start to frame it as zero ecosystem, natural ecosystem conversion, or zero high value ecosystem loss, because there's a bunch of other values that go beyond carbon that are embedded in that concept. But from a measurement point of view, when we're operating largely in landscapes that have been modified by humans and have a variety of conditions, what really matters from a carbon point of view is the impact that land management has on carbon storage. We constantly find that degradation accounts for a substantial amount of carbon losses in tropical landscapes. Everywhere we look at them, we find degradation. Everywhere we look at it, we find that degradation is often more than deforestation in terms of emission, or at least comparable to. And part of this has to do with how you count it, because deforestation is like a event in time. You were forest, and now you're not forest anymore. But in practice, somebody shows up with a chainsaw, cuts a bunch of trees, big ones, takes them out, then maybe there's a fire that comes in. Then eventually somebody comes with a bulldozer and clears the whole area. Unless that happens all at one time in the most brutal direct form of land conversion, this is a process that can happen over time. But the carbon cost of this can be spread over this time. And in fact, the initial loss through high grading of very large trees can actually be, from a carbon point of view, as bad as the final clearing. What that means is recognizing there is a complexity in this process, especially as we start to look at landscapes that are managed in different ways. We have landscapes in which we have agroforestry, in which we have cover crops, shade crops, and so on. The carbon storage of those landscapes will change, even if there is not something that you call a deforestation or not a deforestation event. And that change can be in either direction, by the way. You can actually have positive action that increase carbon storage in the landscape, but they're not necessarily recognized by this binary vision. It's either forest, it's not forest. What are the sort of actions then, in terms of forest management approaches, that can have the best benefits or best impacts on carbon accounting? So in terms of carbon storage, leaving things alone is generally great if they're growing. Right. If you have an established canopy with established root systems that can actually draw down CO2, that generally is the best choice. But there are situations in which you can intervene or you actually need to because the landscape is a working landscape. It needs to produce something in order to not be converted because we have to also look at the situation in some landscapes is that you cannot afford just to leave it alone and conserve it. There are other benefits that have to come to local people, to a local community, and so on. If you have to manage those kind of environments, you need to monitor. You need to know what's happening. And then you have to consider what are the implications of your actions on the future development of the carbon stored in that land. How are you seeing this shift in approach impacting commodity supply chains? I think that commodity supply chains have different situations they deal with in terms of what is the risk that their suppliers represent or what are the opportunities that they have to influence their suppliers and the land that they manage to be better from a carbon storage and then from a biodiversity point of view. Some commodity supply chains have fundamentally 
tied to conversion at zero conversion. And so these are annual crops, right? If you have annual crop production, generally that means that the ecosystem has been converted. And so what you're looking for is for zero conversion. That is a relatively simple problem to handle. At the other extreme, you have shade crops like coffee, where you fundamentally have the opportunity to increase carbon storage on farm while it's being managed as part of your agronomics. And then you have things in between, like, for example, if you have expansion of crops like palm oil, where that happens, does it happen in land that has been locked in very, very low productivity and very low carbon storage post-degradation and actually conversion to palm increases carbon storage, or you actually have clearing of primary rainforest and key habitats, which obviously is incredibly bad, both from a carbon and from a nature point of view, or clearing of peatland and drainage of peatland, which is massive carbon bomb. Having the full accounting, moving away from like a zero deforestation as a binary concept and having a full carbon accounting of activities, I think it's incredibly important. I want to make sure that we don't lose the issue of preserving high-value ecosystems. Because sometimes what carbon accounting mindset can bring is the idea of like, oh, I can swap some primary rainforest here from fast accumulating carbon in reforestation there. Now, that's not true. I mean, it's true from a carbon point of view, if it does it, and you always have the long-term risk of stability on the new plantations and so on, but it doesn't do it from a biodiversity and from a natural value and from a cultural value, from a spiritual value point of view, species and so on. The need is to move both to a simpler but more full accounting of carbon, but also quickly to also bring along the biodiversity implication of what we do. And so increasingly including other ecosystem factors like species abundance and richness, species diversity, endangered species impact, and so on, into the assessment of the footprint of operations and the operational suppliers. Um, These are not things that people haven't talked about, but to some extent, if you move away from a land use link overview, that land use link overview has a bunch of problems with it, but it has also the advantage sometimes of incorporating some of these other issues. And so as we move beyond to a more precise assessment of carbon impact, we also need not to lose and leave behind the assessment of the implication for the other dimensions of what we care about. How do you see this approach evolving, particularly in terms of ensuring that the nature impacts, biodiversity impacts are included in carbon accounting as we go forward? The carbon accounting is critically important and needs to become better, more accurate, more precise, but also more complete in terms of processes it sees. Like today, when we only monitor deforestation, we're not taking into account losses to degradation. We're not taking into account gains from regrowth. And so we're losing both potential negative impacts and important positive impacts that different land management practices have. That has to move forward to a fuller and more coherent picture of what is happening. At the same time, we basically need to move towards these biodiversity indicators. And I know I'm poking like a wasp nest that I don't necessarily know very much about. I'm not a biodiversity expert. A lot of discussions on what do you actually measure? Like biodiversity is a wonderful high-level concept, but it's a very hard one to operationalize. 
because it's not one thing. Like carbon is carbon. There is a physical thing that are carbon atoms. Biodiversity is a concept. It's an intersubjective reality that we, a human, look at something and say, okay, this is biodiverse, this is not biodiverse, but is fundamentally our summary judgment of a state of things that brings in incredible complexity. And so we need to get to some shared agreement on what it means in different parts of the world and how do you monitor and measure it. And there's a lot of work that is going on into that direction and more of that needs to be operationalized. But I think relying on the zero deforestation or zero conversion as the way in which we deal with the complexity of biodiversity and the complexity of carbon at the same time has some limitations. How do we move beyond that? In my mind, it's like without losing the benefits of basically saying, okay, we should have zero conversion or possibly zero net conversion, depending on places, because in the end, these are decisions about land use that have to be taken in consideration the needs of the people who live there. It's easy for people sitting in offices or homes these days in with conveniences and services and access to everything in places that have long been converted to human use to say, well, no one else should convert. There's some economic and social justice issues around having that position as an absolute position. But clearly, we know that as humans, we are pushing the boundaries of nature beyond what is safe. And so we need to make some hard choices. Absolutely. Well, let's see how these choices evolve as we go forward. But for now, Marco Albani, Glorious Geospatial, thank you very much. Thank you, Ian. The Innovation Forum website is, as ever, the place to go for all the usual analysis and interviews. If you've not had a chance yet to read it, do check out our review of what we learned in 2023. That's it for now, though. I've been Ian Welsh, and until next time, goodbye.